Hey, welcome to Night School, Easter edition, Night School, April 12th, and uh, I have a, a little dog staring at me, my my friend Batman, the, the Chihuahua who stayed here so often, has moved in with me full time, which is great, but it's a, it's a whole different dimension, you know, I'm used to having cats my whole life and having a little dog, even though I know him and, and have known him very well for a couple years, hence this decision, uh, it does uh, give your reality a little shift to see the world uh, through a dog's eyes. Um, <laughs> I think that'd be the right way to put it. Uh, you do start to see the world a little differently if you're not used to having a certain type of animal in your daily life. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's Easter, and I, I went for a walk earlier today, and I saw a couple houses where kids or somebody, maybe it was an old man, uh, but somebody had uh, drawn in chalk. And, like, chalk tends to, tends to come in Easter colors anyway, I feel like. I feel like sidewalk chalk is always Easter-friendly. It always comes in Easter colors for whatever reason. I don't know if there's just something about uh, the sorts of colors that lend themselves to sidewalk chalk or if it's deliberate. But let's just say sidewalk chalk gets especially seasonal when Easter comes around. Uh, but I saw like where people had, had written in big letters on two different driveways in the same neighborhood, Happy Easter. And uh, it's it's nice to see people doing that for whatever reason. I'm glad that people have something to celebrate today if they are indeed celebrating. I mean, I haven't been looking at social media or anything like that. I've just been tuning as much of the world out as I can. Not doing any episodes of this lately, obviously. It just doesn't feel like a time to talk. It doesn't feel like a, te- a time to comment. It doesn't feel like a time to create anything either. I don't know why it feels that way. It just does. That just is what my intuition has told me so far. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad if someone can enjoy Easter. And I did take a glimpse at social media today. And, of course, uh, you know, all my... All those subversive souls that I know have to say, you know, screw Easter, they have to spread blasphemy, and that's totally fine, too. I mean, in my opinion, that's celebrating Easter. I think that's what some people don't understand. When they go out of their way to to say, oh, screw Jesus and, and Easter, what they don't realize is they are actually celebrating it. They are calling. They they are calling for a lot of energy to be focused on Easter. They are, they are feeding that energy, the Easter energy, uh, and it's the same thing. Like I, I always talk about every year on on the Super Bowl, how there's always those martyrs out there who who just lay themselves out there with the bold opinion that I'm not watching the Super Bowl. I don't care about the sports football. I don't care about it, just so everybody knows, guess who's not watching the Super Bowl? You know, there's always that person, the, the Super Bowl atheist. They're, a, they're a, uh, a genetic cousin of the pro wrestling atheist. Uh, but yeah, they just got to let everybody know. But meanwhile, they're participating in the Super Bowl. By announcing that they are not watching the Super Bowl, they are still participating in the phenomenon that is the Super Bowl. Uh, it's the same thing when I see like people posting satanic metal today to try to be subversive and all that, and you know it's all in good fun for the most part. It's not people, you know, it's that's what they think. 
they they think it's in, in, in good fun. I don't know. I feel like there's something a little more sinister to it, though. Uh, I think the there reaches a point where if you just if you put this if if there are symbols that are associated with darkness and destruction, and you cover yourself in those symbols, and you immerse yourselves yourself in in, in interests that are based around darkness and destruction, I do feel like it creeps in. I do feel like it, it has an impact of some kind. But I do get that people are just, they just, it's fun for them. They feel like they're rebelling against something. But I think there's something sweet about somebody who celebrates Easter. And, uh, you know, I have my own personal memories of Easter, family memories, memories of my mom that I won't go into, you know, although it is a day that, it is a day where I am feeling more than I've felt in a while. Dear diary, I'm feeling more than I've felt in a while. It is a day like that for me, and it, it has I would say it has very strong Sunday energy. You know, when I started doing Every Night's a School Night, I believe in the first episode I explained how the show was supposed to capture a sort of Sunday type of dread. And the example of Sunday dread that always comes to mind is like, you went on some family trip and you're at an orchard that belongs to some relative that you don't really know very well and they're older and you're bored and it's sunny but not entirely warm and there's just kind of like a gentle wind and sunlight is it's nice and bright but the sun is getting in your eyes and exposing the dust in this weird way and it's it's Sunday, so it's not a true weekend day, even though it's part of the weekend, because it's not a true weekend day if you have to worry about a bedtime and you have to do something like school or work the next day. So it's this Sunday sort of orchard dread. And I wouldn't say I feel dread today at all, but right now at this exact moment, you know, the sun is on the windows and I can see where last time I washed them, it just, it left this like squiggly streaky mark that, that looks really dirty. It's like the path of the washcloth and I, because I didn't spray the windows or something, I just did it with water. It just, it turned it into this weird smudge that's been there for months and I see dust and pollen and uh, the sun's really just exposing all of that and filtering in here in a way that could be depressing, but I'm not going to let it be. Uh, so, yeah, that's the sort of vibe. And knowing it's Easter, knowing it's some, it's a special day of, uh, of some sort, you know, it, whether you're protesting it or whether you're having an Easter egg hunt or whether it's holy to you, whether you're truly recognizing Easter as a religious holiday or if it's just an excuse to stick a one dollar bill in a plastic egg and hide it for your kids it doesn't really matter you know today is a day that has been given meaning and that everybody ends up thinking about one way or another everybody ends up participating in it because if it's on your mind as you go about your day you are participating in it and you know I mentioned the subversive souls the subversive souls uh, out there, you know, flashing their heavy metal horns. You know, they're not going to let uh, they're not going to let Jesus uh, take the spotlight today. How dare he? They, this, it's all about them. It's all about me, not that guy Jesus. You know, for those subversive souls. 
Let's just talk about the soul. You know, it's something that I use pretty casually, that I use pretty casually. And I don't think there's a lot to, I mean, I think, I feel like people used to use it even more casually in that everybody would and could talk about the soul and everybody just sort of understood what that meant at a certain point in time in history. And I feel like most people still kind of get it, but there are those people who question it now. There is an element of skepticism when it comes to, well, does the human soul exist or not? You know, uh, I don't see the evidence. You can't measure it. You can't measure the human soul. And I'm not just, I'm just not very sure about it, you know, and I can't measure it using the system of measurement that I created. Therefore, you know, it's immeasurable, clearly. No, but I feel like the soul can be measured. And I I don't feel like it's that controversial to, to talk about the human soul, even in 2020. I feel like it's something that most people can basically understand. And it's, of course, a placeholder word, as any word is, but especially words that, you know, that transcend culture and time. And beliefs and, and soul is certainly one of those ideas. You know, even if if someone has a different interpretation of it, it's very slight. And people tend to refer to the same thing. And the word soul itself is a placeholder word. Uh, so it's it, it's not about proving that this thing that's called a soul exists. It doesn't matter what you call it. I think the basic idea behind it is something that is more universally understood. Uh, so whether or not you want to call it a soul is totally unimportant to me. Uh, but a soul is one of those things that I, you aren't aware of it when things are going well. You know, when life is just moving, and I don't mean like, like you're not aware of it. I'm not, when I, when I'm saying things are going well, I don't mean perfection. I don't mean utopia. I don't mean happiness even. When I say things are going well, I just mean when you're just in the flow of life, you're not really aware of your own soul when you're just going through it. I mean, it, it's one of the reasons why people put children on such a pedestal. It's because children aren't disconnected from their soul yet in most cases, you know, and in the exceptional cases when a kid is disconnected from his soul, it's fucking weird and, and sad. And we've all known kids like that, or we've seen examples of them. We've heard stories. But for the most part, you know, someone who's just in the in the full swing of childhood is totally synchronized with their own soul. And what that means is there's no distinction. There's no distinction between their soul and the life that they are living and the world they are experiencing. It's what I'll refer on this show to as the wholeness. They're just in the wholeness and they're learning things. They're asking questions. You know, it's not like they are experts. It's not like they are these masters, but that shows you that it's something that can be there even without mastery. It's something that can be there, you know, even without being taught and, if anything, it's just something that needs to be activated. Uh, but for whatever reason, you know, when we are born into this life, it's already activated. And barring serious trauma, most kids are very connected to their soul to the point that there's no distinction. 
And because there's no distinction, there's no distinction between them and reality, which is why their parents and people around them have to teach them boundaries. Don't get close to that ledge. Don't get close to that sharp thing. Be careful of the of, of the stove. It's hot. Oh, yeah, that animal, If the, the tiger will, if you fall into the cage, the tiger will maul you, you know? Those basic lessons, and that's an important one. You got to you gotta get specific about these things. If you're out there and you're raising a child, you know, I won't pretend to know a lot about raising children. I'm no expert. I have no children of my own. But you have to get very specific, you know. You have to tell them, uh, you know, that a, a certain animal might maul them, you know. Uh, but anyway... Because, uh, you know, you could tell them that a bear might maul them, but they're not going to realize that a wolf will do the same thing. So you got to teach them both. you got to teach them both. Uh, but, you know, with a kid, though, the kid is just living that life, and, and nothing has disconnected them from their soul. And I don't think it's so much that, you know, horrible things will cause you to disconnect from your soul. I think it's just kind of part of the process. You get so caught up in uh, your own system of measurement. To go back to that idea, talking about how some people, you know, are they question the existence of the soul because you can't measure it using a human-created system of measurement. Uh, but I feel like we all do the same thing just in our own lives as we grow, uh, as we become teenagers, as we become adults. We develop this system of measurement, and part of it's the system of measurement that's been taught to us. And by this, I'm not talking about actual mathematics. I'm not talking about actual science, although that is a part of it. I'm just talking about everything that we've learned and everything we use to assess our surroundings and our experiences. And it's how we use comparison. It's it's how we, you know, we make sense of things by being like, oh, this situation is like that situation I was already in or that situation I heard about from someone else. And in situations like this, you are supposed to respond this way. So uh, over time, that gives you your own personal you know, method of measuring the world around you. And you make decisions based on that or non-decisions. But somewhere in there, somewhere in that system of, you know, of measurement that you participate in, uh, and uh, you, you pull in other people's systems of measurement because you're constantly questioning your own anyway. That's the, that's one of the things is you, you're constantly questioning whether you're doing the right thing, whether you're measuring and assessing the world in the right way. And uh, you because you don't want to do it the wrong way because then you might die. Well, God, you might die if you do it the wrong way, or someone else might die. If I, if I measure things wrong, if I assess things wrong. So it's, there's this constant fear that making the slightest misstep is going to cause destruction and death. You know, it's going to cause darkness. So we have this just fear of that. So it's not just that we're developing our own way of doing things, our own way of understanding things. We're constantly bringing in other people's perspective as well because we don't trust ourselves. And so you can see, even in the way that, even in this convoluted way that I'm trying to explain this, you can already see where someone's soul could get twisted up between childhood, where it's, you know, relatively untwisted, and then adulthood, where many people feel that their soul, if they even are aware of it, is twisted up. 
And I think it takes the soul being twisted up. It takes the soul having some sort of injury. And I don't mean that in some sensitive therapy speak sort of way. I mean a literal injury to it. How can something that you can't even see or measure have an injury in it? Well, you just you'll know it. And that's often how you come into contact with your soul in the first place in the first place is that something is twisted up, something is damaged, something is in pain, this thing, and you suddenly become aware of it. It's this thing that it's in your core, it's in what you it's it's in everything you do, and you suddenly become aware of it simply because it starts hurting. It's almost like you're used to hearing an engine, a car engine. It makes all of these abrasive, horrible noises, totally unnatural. It spews smoke. It runs on gasoline. It's An engine is this really abrasive, uh, a car engine is this really abrasive machine. But yet, if it starts making a slightly different noise, you know something's wrong. It's already abrasive. An engine already does, it already makes a racket pollutes everything. It's already this weird, fucked-up thing, but yet you know if it starts rattling in a slightly wrong way and you suddenly become aware of it. Because you'll be driving down the street and your engine is working normally, and it's not that that engine is quiet. It's not that that engine isn't doing something that's totally uh, disruptive, because it is, no matter what. A car engine is a loud and disruptive device, but you you just know that it's working properly, and so you don't really notice it. But then something slightly wrong starts happening, and you notice it. All of your attention goes on to that. Suddenly you become very aware, and then you start hearing other things that may or may not be wrong. The whole thing seems like it's in disharmony now. Just because one little noise started rattling in your car that doesn't normally rattle. And I, I feel like it's the same thing with the human soul where you might not be aware of it your whole life. You might have ups and downs, all this and that, but you might enter a period where you go, suddenly I, I, something is rattling, and this thing that I kind of tuned out, this thing that I didn't even really focus on or pay attention to inside of me, something started rattling, and now I'm aware of the fact that it's not working properly, that it's twisted up, that it feels damaged in some way, that something is off. And that's a hell of a way to come into contact with your own soul. You know, that's a hell of a way to become aware of your own soul for the first time. And unfortunately, it's the most common way. The most common way that you're going to get into contact and become aware of your own soul is, is because it, it starts making a noise or hurting or, or something becomes disruptive about it. Uh, and but that's a good thing because it makes you aware of it and if you become aware of it you can start making decisions to untwist that soul you know and and you can twist it too far in the opposite direction and fuck things up too and that happens all the time uh, but once you become aware of it even if it's disruptive even if it's painful whatever it is you know simply being aware of your own soul is such a a major step in the right direction because from that point on you can start taking opportunities and we all have that sensation of a voice telling us when something's right or wrong and some people have a tendency to think that's all society 
this this crazy abstract thing called society that just tells us we have to be a certain way. And of course, things get socially reinforced. Of course they do. But that's one of the biggest, most commonly accepted conspiracy theories is this idea of this omnipotent conspiratorial society that's trying to condition us to behave certain ways all the time. And it's forceful and deliberate and and not just a product of chance and the phenomenon of human survival and people coming together. You know, it's people have a tendency to see it as this cons- this massive conspiratorial force and anytime someone does anytime you do find out that it's manipulated deliberately which of course does happen but anytime you hear that like you know society has been manipulated or or certain outcomes have been reinforced there's this tendency to think oh well that just proves that the whole conspiracy is true that society really is this great looming nefarious force that's out to make me feel lesser because I'm not macho or because I'm, oh, society is this big looming dark shadow that's that was very deliberately designed to make me feel bad for being a man that cries. You know, it's it's like, do you really believe that, that things are that well orchestrated? I personally don't think there's much evidence that... Uh, I think most conspiracies are an exception in the face of chaos and ultimately come from an effort to survive some way or another. And, of course, that gets twisted up because people's souls get twisted up. Um, and... But simply recognizing that, to go back to what I'm actually talking about, you know, it's recognizing that it's there and and starting to acknowledge those moments when something inside of you tells you to do something or not do something. It doesn't have to be the angel or devil on your shoulder, although I feel like that's such a common trope because it is very much like this. It is, it is those are place, the angel and the devil on the shoulder are placeholders uh, in the same way that a soul is a placeholder word for something that can't be described, you know, you know, in exact terms, it's the same thing for the angel and the devil on your shoulder, where you know that does come from somewhere, and that's something that people experience regardless of the symbols that those angel and devil represent. You know, it's it's simply this some sort of intuition inside of you that comes out and tells you to either do something or not do something. And it isn't a pros and cons column. It's not something that's all drawn out and analytical. It's just something you feel in that moment. And the more that you start making the decisions that you feel intuitively are right, the more you'll find that your soul does start to untwist. And it's gradual. It's not immediate. I mean, you'll, there will always be breakthroughs. There will always, always be epiphanies. There will always be key moments where it feels like just a lot of light just started shining in in one moment. But for the most part, that sort of untwisting is gradual, and you have to start making decisions when the opportunity presents itself, and opportunities will present themselves immediately. And I know, I'm someone who, when I hear opportunity, I think... What can I do action-wise? You know, when you, if you're feeling particularly hyped and excited, you think, what can I do action-wise? I can bark. 
I can bark. I can stop barking out the window on a nice spring day. On a, and I give, let the world hear a nice Easter bark, right, buddy? Um, uh, but uh, it's one of those things where, you know, it's like, oh, what can I do? Because when you're hyped, you, wanna, you, you basically want to change the world in that moment. You don't want to wait. You don't want to plant something and watch it grow. When you're feeling hyped and you're feeling empowered, when you just watched that self-help presentation and you're ready to turn your life around, you don't want to be like, "Oh, I can only do one thing that's going to that I'm only going to it's only going to have a gradual impact." You're like, "I want to do everything. I want to get buff today." You know what I'm saying? Like I want to go I don't want to go to the gym 3 times a week and maybe after five months start to see some muscle i want to go to the gym and spend 20 hours there and i want to get buff today i mean that's kind of the approach that we take to these things where it's like i want to do it all today and you see this too with like this obsession with psychedelics and i'm not going to criticize it i mean obviously psychedelics are a deep subject and one that i deliberately don't go into on this show uh, not super deliberately. I just, it's like, I, there's, there's stuff I could say about psychedelics, but I just, I feel like it's, it's such a sidetracked element of what I feel is a larger conversation. And I feel like the same person who, you know, wants to go to the gym and get buff that day. It's the first day they ever went to the gym and they want to go there and they, they're going to spend 20 hours and they want to be buff that day. To me, that's sort of like the person who, you know, wants to eat a bunch of mushrooms or take a bunch of LSD and have this spiritual experience or this, this soul revolution in the span of eight hours. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. And I know that people do have their lives seriously changed for the better when they do that. It's like, I would, I would rather somebody want to go to the gym at all and have the wrong expectations or expect a more immediate result. Going to the gym at all and having that vision is way better than just going, Oh, because I can't get buff today, I'm not going to go at all. You know, going with a false expectation in that case is probably better. It kind of in the same way that somebody who decides to, you know, take LSD or mushrooms to facilitate or I don't even know how I'd put it to produce some sort of sensation akin to a spiritual experience or epiphany. You know, I feel like the intention behind that is better than saying I'm an atheist and, and nothing Nothing uh, except what I experience, you know, on a day-to-day basis it can be proved. Yeah, I don't even know. I, I shouldn't. I'm not going to put words in an atheist's mouth. You know, that's the last thing I want to do. Truly the last thing I, I'd ever want to do. Um, but uh, to me, it's kind of the same idea where it's like there's this idea where people want to produce something immediately when they're in the mood for that. And you have to take advantage of of that sort of motivation, but I feel like sometimes people have a false expectation, and it really is as simple as the next time you have an opportunity to do or not do something, be aware of it when it comes up, and be aware of what could potentially happen based on which, which side you end up on, based on which decision you make. Be aware of that moment when it comes up, and people love to give this idea that everything's a fork in the road and I feel like I'm saying that myself the next next time you're at a fork in the road just be very aware of it 
be aware of the fact that you have a choice, that you're standing in the middle of this Y, and uh, you have a choice whether to go left or right. Be aware of it. I don't even think it's that. I don't even think it's as obvious as that, as, you know, I'm at a fork between two roads. But at the same time, you will be presented with a potential decision. And I think the key is to realize that you have a a lot of opportunities to make decisions that don't present themselves as forks in the road, but they're decisions nonetheless. And instead of like taking the left path or the right path, you're actually going to be on the same path no matter what. And that was something that I didn't realize. You know, it took me forever to realize that, that, oh, I haven't changed paths. I'm actually on the same path that I was on all along. I'm on the same path I was on when I was closing out bars and just, you know, uh, running my mind through the gutter. I mean, I'm on the same path I was on then. It doesn't feel like it. It doesn't look like it. It's a lot brighter. It's a lot lighter, physically lighter. Uh, But I'm actually on that same path, and it was that path that got me here. It was that part of the path that got me where I'm at here. And it was that part of the path that made me realize I had a soul, because I was suddenly acutely aware of the fact that my soul was in some sort of crisis. That my soul, not that that it was like, oh man, if you don't, uh, if if you don't get an IV with some water in it, into your soul in 24 hours, you know, it wasn't like that, but it was just knowing that, okay, if I keep doing this, if I keep, if I, if I keep creating environments and putting myself in environments and creating a world for myself based on these sorts of things and these sorts of experiences and above all else, these ways of thinking, this crisis is going to escalate really quickly. And it does for people. You know, it really does. When someone's soul is in crisis, the escalation is just unbelievable. And you have to stop and recognize where you have control, where you can make decisions. And they always come back to you. They always end up being things that you can control about yourself. And that's such a self-help cliche. Uh, But you can't control other people. You can only control yourself and you'll realize that one of the first decisions is deciding not to try to control other people, not to try to influence them. And it's easy to trick yourself, too, into thinking that this doesn't apply to you. Because for me, when I hear, like, oh, you have to decide not to control other people, I was never some, like, busybody, like, housewife gossip, and I apologize to anybody, any housewives out there, but who was trying to, like, manipulate some dramatic interpersonal melodrama between people. You know, it's not like I was doing that, but you realize that through your words, through your actions, you are subtly trying to control what other people do sometimes because you think that it'll make your life better or, or, or you think that it'll make their lives better and for some reason you're in charge of that or you're supposed to influence that. You're supposed to steal their destiny, their spotlight. Like, oh, I know what's best for you. And there's some people that you'll meet and all they ever do is try to tell you what's best for you. And at some point you realize, oh, this is just what they do. This is just like, they just talk like this. <laughs> you know, they just sit around talking like this all the time. Uh, but if you meet someone like that and they're charismatic, you know, you, they can really sweep you up. Um, 
but uh, the point being is just the self-help cliche about controlling yourself. You know, that's, you know, one of the first decisions that you can make is deciding not to control other people, not trying to make that subtle statement that doesn't say it outright, but is trying to get somebody to do something that you want them to do. It could be anything, you know. It could be like you're at a sleepover with your friends and you're trying to decide what kind of pizza to order and you basically try to conspire to order a pepperoni pizza when everybody else wants cheese. You you try to get somebody on your side. You try to, you know, you play politics over over sleepover pizza. That's how it starts. That's how your soul starts slowly getting twisted as you're 12 years old and you're playing pizza politics at a sleepover. That's how it gets you. No, but there are all sorts of ways that you may you might not even realize you're trying to influence other people and simply deciding not to. And you can always make the statement, well, I'm going to do this. And other people might decide, well, I like that idea. I'm going to do that with that person. But it's deciding not to try to control other people is is just at the core of uncurling your your tightly wound soul uh and and then realizing how many decisions that you can make for yourself that you were ignoring or you were just for whatever reason just not paying attention to when those opportunities presented themselves because, uh, yeah, the second you stop worrying about what other people are doing and worrying about why they are doing those things, you suddenly have a lot more energy, a lot more space to start thinking about the things that you are doing and why you are doing them. And when you ask why you're doing them, uh, you realize it's because you made a decision to do them. It, you deliberately did something. I mean, the example I've used before is like if you binge eat, it's like you don't think of it as a decision to get up and get another Oreo or whatever it is you do. Uh, whatever your favorite snack is. Let me go down the list of everybody's favorite snacks so that this story really personally resonates with you. With yous. Uh, no, but it could be, you know, you're going to get the other Oreo and you're almost on autopilot. You're just doing it. You know that you're making a decision, but you feel somewhat powerless. It's getting another drink. It's doing anything. It's binging on anything. It's hitting play after, you know, when you're when you're binge watching, you know, uh, nut Netflix shows, you know, a great joke, I know. Um, but it's it's, you know, when you're binge watching shows and it comes to an end and it says, like, play next. It's like you're going to impulsively hit play next, even though you don't really need to spend 10 hours without moving. And binging, it, binging creates, it's it's like the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what, what do you call it? It's like the intersectionality of binging. Like, the more that you binge watch something, the more likely you are to binge eat. Because I know when I've binge watched... I have a tendency to be like, well, at the start of every episode, I deserve a new treat. So every hour, I'm, I'm pretty much going to have a meal every hour. And then I'm probably going to snack in between, you know. It, so it's like binging creates other forms of binging. You know, binge watching 
lends itself to binge eating because you're sitting there and you want something because just the visual entertainment isn't good enough. You got to have some taste. You got to taste something too. You got to be putting something in your mouth. You got to be doing something with your body. You got to be reaching into something. You got to be digging your hand into something. You know, you, you want to be eating things while you watch things. So binge eating lends itself to binge watching. And if you throw substances in there, that's that speaks for itself, too, because, you know, it's really a lot of fun when you're binge watching. It's to, you know, smoke a bunch of weed, smoke a bowl at the start of every episode. Open a new bag of treats at the start of every episode. You know, intersectional binging. It's what people do. These things lend themselves to each other in the same way that working out lends itself to eating well. And I've been eating kind of shitty lately, so I'm not on a high horse here. I'm not on a high horse. Uh, But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just very aware of the way that disciplines interlock. And an example of that is that when you work out, when you lift weights, you think to yourself, I want to eat something that is going to go well with what I just did. So I'm going to want some protein. I'm, I'm going to want my body, and, and I'm not perfect with this stuff. I don't get super scientific about my diet. You know, I, I, I know what's good for me. I know what's generally good for people, and I use that as a guideline. But, you know, when you've been working out, especially regularly, you think, what's going to go well with that? And so you end up with these interlocking disciplines where it's like, okay, if I'm going to work out, I'm going to want to eat something that aids that, that, that enhances that in some way and vice versa. You know, it's like you just start to see where even just those two things interlock, they literally feed into each other. They, you're literally feeding, you know, and I I hate that term, a feed. Oh, they're feeding. It's gross. Um, but, uh, you see where just those disciplines interlock, and then you realize that other disciplines interlock too. It could be creative. It could be developing a creative schedule. Uh, and you'll see where something like lifting weights, something that doesn't seem creative, something like running, something that doesn't seem traditionally creative, actually does lend itself towards some kind of creative structure in your life too. And you can build on those ideas. These things interlocked, and they build together. Reading, you know, it, it, taking the time to read, scheduling reading, making sure that you read a chapter of a book before bed. You know, just anytime you structure your day, it's like the different structures are going to interlock and reinforce each other. And the same goes for when you have no structure. Uh, and what you realize is that becomes a structure unto itself. You know, binge watching, binge eating, you know, smoking weed all day to go along with those activities, that's a set of interlocking disciplines too. And you're making a decision to do those things. You know, you do have a certain form of discipline in doing those things. Your discipline is just based around something complete opposite from what the mainstream defines as disciplined behavior. But it still requires decision, it still requires commitment but you don't realize how committed you are because you don't stop to pay attention every time you reach into the bag or every time you hit next because next thing you know, you're just in it again. You're just in it. Another episode, another bag of treats. Pack another bowl, you know, and there's your day right there. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. I want to say that too. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but a lot of people end up really unhappy when they do that. 
A lot of people end up unhappy when their lives revolve around binging activities of various kinds. It doesn't matter what it is. It seems like binging, no matter what it is, even just binging on good things, you know, that'll eventually wear thin too. Uh, you know, you can get hurt working out. Uh, you can bin, you know, it's like, it seems like binging anything, you know, has a tendency to take away from something else. Um, but, uh, you know, recognizing that something like that is a decision that you do have total control over the decision to hit next and watch that next episode. You can space it out. You can drag it out. You cannot play video games for 10 hours a day. You can make the decision to not do that. And I'm a, I feel like a hypocrite here, but as recent episodes have explained, uh, you know, be a hypocrite. You know, your brain is more than capable of maintaining a healthy level of hypocrisy. <laughs> you know, like our brains are more than capable of doing that. Um, and in my case, like I, I was playing a ton of video games like a week ago. I was playing Breath of Fire 2 for Super Nintendo. I beat it. I'd never beaten that game. And I, it was one of those things, though, where I was like, eh, you know, I might, you, even though, even though I've been preaching, even though I've been preaching, you know, for people not to get sucked into the video game world, especially like now that they have the opportunity to legally be shut-ins. I mean, they have to be. Uh, everyone has to be a shut-in right now, so it would be prime time to be, you know, a porno-watching, video game-playing, Netflix-binging, whatever. You know, because that's those what those things create is they turn you into a big, a big old whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, as much as I caution against that, I got sucked into the video game thing. And the reason I, I caution people about video games, you know, even though I haven't played them consistently since I was a teenager, the reason I caution people about them is because it really is just like, oh, I'm going to play video games for an hour a day, or I'm going to play, like, a, like I'm going to do one thing in a video game until I get to the next save point. Next thing you know, you've been playing for five hours, because that's what happens to me. That's what happened to me again, and again, and again, and recently it happened again with Breath of Fire 2, where next thing I knew I'd been playing video games for 12 hours, and now I'm playing Breath of Fire 3, but... Having some binges here and there, but I've spaced it out a little better. But the reason I caution people about that is because I'm preaching what I need. I'm preaching what I need. You got to have some resistance there. You can't get sucked into the video games. You can't get sucked into Netflix. It's not wrong to indulge, but it goes back to those ideas of catabasis and anabasis, you know, when you're descending, when you're going into a slump where you're eating the wrong things, you're consuming the wrong things, you know, thinking the wrong thoughts, it's okay if you recognize that you're descending and you have the intention of ascending again. And a real intention. You know, you're not just telling yourself, oh, I'm going to start doing this, I'm going to start breaking all my good habits and indulging in bullshit, you know, you have to sincerely intend to get back out again. And it can actually help reinforce the good behavior because it reminds you of what it feels like when you're not at the top of your game. It reminds you, you know, how you feel when you're not at your best. And for myself personally, I also know the boundaries of that. 
I know I know the boundaries of the catabasis process where it's like if I threw alcohol into that, not that, you know, not that my drinking was worse than a lot of people's it was or is, but at the same time, I know that bringing alcohol into a, a catabasic, I guess you could call it, bringing, bringing alcohol into my own catabasis, there's a chance that things might go horribly wrong and I wouldn't be able to ascend again. I don't feel that that would, I don't feel that that's smart. I don't feel that it would be smart to bring that into it. I don't feel like it would be smart to, you know, bring even a bag of chips into it unless it just came by me, you know, unless it like floated up, unless I was like walking by a stream and a bag of chips floated up on the shore. You know, there's not a reason for me to go out and buy a giant bag of Doritos because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to eat the whole thing. I'm going to eat the whole thing in a sitting. I'm going to binge I'm going to be binge gaming, binge watching and eating that whole bag of Doritos. I just know it. It's what's going to happen if I buy it. And so things like alcohol and Doritos, I'd rather just go with zero. Rather than just like being like, "Oh, I'm going to incorporate Doritos and beer into my catabasic descent." No, it's not going to work. I can't go with that. I can't I can't just casually bring those things in. I know I can handle weed. I know that weed could come and go in my life fine. I know that weed's not going to take me to a, a take me to any place that's going to you know, it's it's not going to be an irreversible process if I play around with with marijuana, for example. So I know that if I were to go into a catabasis, that weed can be a part of that. And in smoking weed, I will also realize why weed doesn't need to be a part of my life, too. Because that's what catabasis does, is it, is it shows you, okay, I'm flirting with these things that I know aren't great for me. And I'm flirting with them enough to get a taste for them, to satisfy some kind of craving, maybe, even. But I'm not going to, you know, let them, I'm not going to stay there with them. And when I ascend, when I go through that anabasis and I, and I ascend again, uh, it'll make me appreciative. I'll be glad that I dabbled in that thing, but I'll, you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll be happy to not have it in my life anymore. And it's the same for any kind of like discipline or any of that. And, and the same thing with a catabasis, another part about going through some sort of catabasic process, and that might be like total nonsense language. I don't know if catabasic is a way to actually describe you know, the process of catabasis, whatever. I'm just, this is just becoming like nonsense poetry the more I talk. Uh, a bag of Doritas just floats up down the river and you pick it up. And well, if that happens, you know, you might as well just eat it. But don't go to the store. Don't go to the store, the store, and buy yourself a bag. Uh, but, you know, just as it's it's basically you enter into this process knowing that you're kind of sinking down a little bit, but you have the full intention of coming back out and you're not going to bring anything in with you that is going to sink you too far down low. I think that is a way of explaining how that process works for me. And I think this whole thing going on right now, this this whole thing going on in the world, it feels a lot like my own experiences with catabasis. Uh, it, it feels like my own experience is sinking down low personally just for a little bit with the intention of going back up. And, you know, there's a lot of people who want it to be the end of the world. And e 
even if it's sort of like the Super Bowl people, it's sort of like the um, the Easter people, where the people who are saying it's the end of the world are saying they d- they don't want it to be the end of the world, but yet in, in in even describing it as the end of the world at all, they're becoming participants. They're actually celebrating the end of the world. By even calling it the end of the world, they are celebrating the end of the world. Just like somebody who's talking shit about Easter is still celebrating Easter in a way, and the person who announces to the world that they're not watching the Super Bowl is still participating and celebrating, participating in and celebrating the Super Bowl. I think it's the same thing with this. Uh, just where acknowledging it at all. Uh, is a is a form of celebration. Participating at all is a form of celebration. And uh, and it, I think one of the benefits of a, a process like catabasis is when you come out again, when you find yourself ascending, when your system is is cleaned out, and you're back to the level that you want to be on or higher maybe even because sometimes I think it takes going down a little bit to get even higher the next time to climb a little bit higher you have to go down a little bit maybe reroute Uh, but when you're back when you ascend when you go through that anabasic process and you ascend is that the simple fact that you've ascended again is the celebration you don't have to pat yourself on the back you don't you don't have to reward yourself because I think rewards are a trick uh, rewards are a trick. Like when, whenever you, like if you work out so that you can reward yourself with a piece of chocolate cake, it's not that you shouldn't have chocolate cake when you feel like it, and it's not that you shouldn't work out so that you can have more treats when you feel like it. But I feel like when you end up with that carrot on a stick sort of mindset, and you're only doing something for some sort of material, external pleasure. Like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to go for a jog so that I can get that molten lava cake and guilt-free. Um, you know, it's like if, if you're going to be that guy, uh, you, you're going to sound like that. Your inner monologue is going to sound that way, the way that guy's voice sounds. And you're just, I feel like you're going to have less of a pure experience doing the good thing. You know, so it's like instead instead like working out for the reasons that I mean, I mean, who am I to say the reasons that you should work out or the reasons you should do anything? I mean, getting up on this high horse here, this high horse turns out it's a high chair. Turns out it's a baby high chair. I'm up on my high horse, but it's a hobby horse. It's just a broom handle with a horse head at the end. That's my high horse. It's just it's real. It's a really long hobby horse. It's a really long hobby horse. That's my high horse. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, I feel like yeah, you don't you don't want to operate in a way where you're like there's this carrot on a stick either, because that's another thing that gets you all twisted up. Just to go back to that, it's like you've gone through this process where you're you're just you're trying to make the right decisions you're scared you're you know it's 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 not a mystery why people get all twisted up it's not a mystery why people 
you know, only come into contact with their soul, only become aware of the existence of their soul when it starts hurting. I mean, it's almost like a liver. It's, it's, it's like a, an internal organ that you only become aware of when it's not working properly, because when it's working properly, you don't feel it and you don't hear it, and you may even take it for granted, and there's nothing wrong with taking it for granted, because are you going to tell a kid who's running around, who's just living from one moment to the next, like a little dog, a kid who's running around like a happy little dog, are, are you going to tell them, oh, you're taking your soul for granted, oh, hey, kid, you're only five years old, so your soul hasn't had a chance to disharmonize with your body, and you're clearly taking it for granted. You're taking it for granted that your soul is totally in, harm- in harmony with what it means to be alive. You know, because there, there reaches a certain point where, with all this talk in our world of like, so-and-so has more privilege in society than so-and-so, it's like, isn't privilege something that you're ultimately supposed to act on? but be grateful for? Isn't that what a privilege is? Is a privilege something that you should be ashamed of and hide from? And, you know, no. You know, a privilege is something that you are aware of and grateful for, but you use that privilege, and hopefully in a way that isn't disrespectful or isn't at, that doesn't take advantage of anybody else or take someone else's privileges away from them. Uh, And I feel like it's the same thing. Like when you are in harmony with your soul and you are not feeling your soul because being, having your soul be in harmony with your life means not feeling it, not seeing it, not touching it because it's simply everything. When you're in that situation, you should just enjoy the privilege. You know, and I think in enjoying the privilege, you do set an example for others. Because those are the people that I find myself focusing on now more than ever. I don't care what somebody offers intellectually. I don't care what somebody offers creatively. I don't, I don't care how good someone is at a specific skill or task. The main thing that I look for in people, the people that I look up to these days, is just do they seem to be in harmony? Do they seem to be good with God? And not according to anybody else's definition. You know, does their soul seem to be in harmony with the life they are living? That is what I look for in people. And it's what I want for myself, but I also know that to overthink that is to continue to twist myself up. So it really is a process of stepping back. It's a process of reversal, but you just have to know, you know, how to reverse in the right spots. Because I think that's the, the part, too, is, you know, in some ways you're undoing things that you have have done. But, you you know, and, and if you're bending your soul back to some earlier state, it's like there's this tendency to be like, oh, uh, I've got to do it this way and I've, I've got to shift it at this exact moment. I mean, it's why people go to therapists. I know, I know what I'm saying right now isn't entirely clear, but it's sort of like when people go to a therapist and they're like, oh, well, we need to undo the trauma from this one specific event. And the focus is all on, I don't know, like retracing your steps. And I think that's important. I'm I'm not going to discount therapy, psychotherapy. But at the same time, it seems like just letting things fall back into place naturally by stopping the rumination, stopping the overthinking, um, 
it's not about undoing past events. It's not about undoing experiences because you can't do that. It's more about undoing the process that created your overactive brain. And that's the hard stuff to identify. But it turns out just letting it sit, just letting it sit, that will undo it. And it again goes back to that gradual process. Just start making the right decisions. When your intuition tells you to do something, do it. And you will notice that things start to slowly untwist on their own. They start to fall back into place. They start to settle. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.